Did you know that whenever you use a website, you give them permission to track what you do online? If you keep the tab open, they can see what you do and create a digital footprint of you. Well, with Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you never have to worry about downloading any risky files, but all of your web browsing will be protected, guaranteeing that you can search freely without leaving any digital footprint, and guaranteeing that you can't be tracked online. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today, and feel safe every day on your devices. I live in Europe, and it's incredibly easy to travel here. By bus, train or plane, I can be in any other European country in a matter of hours, for pretty cheap. But while I'm in other countries, I still want to check my emails, check my YouTube analytics and all that fun stuff. Well, by using Surfshark VPN, I changed my location to France using one of their 3200 plus servers, and I'm no longer annoyed by thousands of emails from Google freaking out saying, Oh my god, there's a computer in Spain trying to hack you! There isn't Google. It's me. And thanks to Surfshark, I'm no longer bothered by these annoying messages. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and log into all your accounts anywhere with zero hassle and no annoying emails. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. This show is brought to you by my store, where you can purchase all my audiobooks after publication here for €5, Euros, and you can also purchase clothing with the beautiful comics and... Uh, and, and all of that, drawn by uh, Valentina Angela Rios, who is uh, not only a wonderful artist, but a fantastic person. And all of the profits from those get split 50-50 between her and myself. Um, so if you don't want to support me, but you want to support her, go to the store. Or if you want to support me and support her, go to the store. And if you're thinking, you know, I could use a jumper, go to the store. So if you'd like to support the show, then go to the store, check it out. We've got some good stuff there. And I'm just waiting on my delivery and then... I'll probably just be wearing those from now on, because they're, they're really cool. <laughs> I really like them. Anyway, uh, I'll stop waffling, and uh, let's get started. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s, and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views, and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kessie Part 3 2 Two whores on their way down from Portland take us deep-sea fishing in a boat. Made it tough to stay in bed till the dorm lights came on at 6.30. I was the first one up out of the dorm to look at the list posted on the board next to the nurse's station. Check to see if my name was really signed there. Sign up for the deep sea fishing was printed in big letters at the top. Then McMurphy had signed it first, and Billy Bibbit was number one right after McMurphy. Number three was Harding, number four was Fredrickson, and all the way down to number ten, where nobody'd sign yet. My name was there, the last put down, across from the number nine. I was actually going out of the hospital with two whores on a fishing boat. I had to keep saying it over and over to myself to believe it. The three black boys slipped up in front of me and read the list with grey fingers. Found my name there, 
and turned to grin at me. Why, who you suppose signed Chief Bromden up for this foolishness? Indians ain't able to write. What makes you think Indians are able to read? The starch was still fresh and stiff enough this early that their arms rustled in their white suits when they moved, like paper wings. I acted deaf to them, laughing at me, like I didn't know. But when they stuck a broom out for me to do work up in the hall, I turned around and walked back to the dorm, telling myself, the hell with that. A man going fishing with two horse from Portland don't have to take that crap. It scared me some, walking off from them like that, because... I never went against the black boy's orders before. I looked back and saw them coming after me with the broom. They'd probably have come right on in the dorm and got me, but for McMurphy. He was in there, making such a fuss, roaring up and down between the beds, snapping a towel at the guy signed to go this morning, that the black boys decided maybe the dorm wasn't such safe territory to venture into, for no more than somebody to sweep a little dab of hallway. McMurphy had his motorcycle cap pulled way forward on his red hair to look like a boat captain, and the tattoos, shown from the sleeves of his t-shirt, were done in Singapore. He was swaggering around the floor like it was the deck of a ship, whistling in his hand like a bosun whistle. Hit the deck, mateys! Hit the deck, or I keyhole the lot of ye from stock to stern! He rang the bedstand next to Harding's bed with his knuckles. Six bells and all's well! Steady as she goes. Hit the deck! Drop your and grab your socks. He noticed me standing just inside the doorway and came rushing over to thump my back like a drum. Look here at the big chief. Here's an example of a good sailor and fisherman. Up before day and digging out red worms for bait. The rest of you scurvy bunch of lubbers do well to follow his lead. Hit the deck. Today's the day. Out of sack and into the sea. The cutes grumbled and griped at him with his towel and the chronics woke up to look around with their heads, blue from lack of blood cut off by the sheets tied too tight across the chest, looking around the dorm till they finally centered on me with weak and watered-down old looks, faces wistful and curious. They lay there, watching me pull on warm clothes for the trip, making me feel uneasy and a little guilty. They could sense I'd been singled out as the only chronic making the trip, they watched me, old guys welded in wheelchairs for years, with catheters down their legs like vines, rooting them there for the rest of their lives, right where they were. They watched me, and they knew instinctively that I was going. And they could still be a little jealous it wasn't them. They could know, because enough of the man in them had been damped out, that the old animal instinct had taken over. Old chronics wake up sudden some nights before anybody else knows a guy's died in the dorm, and throw back their heads and howl. And they could be jealous, because there was enough men in them to still remember. McMurphy went out to look at the list, and came back and tried to talk one more acute into signing, going down the line, kicking beds still had guys in them, with sheets pulled over their heads, telling them what a great thing it was to be out there in the teeth of the gale, with a he-man sea-cracking around, and a goddamn yo-heave-ho and a bottle of rum. Come on, loafers! I need one more mate to round out the crew. Need one more goddamn volunteer. But he couldn't talk anybody into doing it. The big nurse had the rest scared with her stories of how rough the sea'd been lately and how many boats had sunk. And it didn't look like we'd get that last crew member till half an hour later 
when George Sorensen came up to McMurphy in the breakfast line, where we were waiting for the mess hall to be unlocked for breakfast. Big, toothless, naughty old Swede, the black boys called Rub-a-Dub George, because this thing about sanitation, comes shuffling up in the hall, listing well back so his feet went well out in front of his head. So he's backward this way to keep his face as far away from the man he's talking to as he can. Stopped in front of McMurphy and mumbled something in his hand. George was very sly. You couldn't see his eyes because they were so deep under his brow, and he cupped his big palm around most of the rest of his face. His head swayed like a crow's nest on top of a mast-like spine. He mumbled in his hand till McMurphy reached up and pulled the hand away so the words could get out. Now, George, what is it you're saying? Red worms, he was saying. I just don't think they'll do you no good. Not for the Chinook. Yeah, McMurphy said. Red worms? I might agree with you, George, if you let me know about these red worms you're speaking of. I think just a while ago I heard you say Mr. Bromden was out digging the red worms for bait. That's right, Pa, I remember. So, I just say you don't have no good fortune with them worms. This here is the month with the one big chinook run, for sure. Herring you need? Sure. You jig up some herring and use those as the fellow bait. Then you have some good fortune. His voice went up at the end of every sentence. For tune. Like, he was asking a question. His big chin, already scrubbed so much this morning, he'd worn the hide off of it, nodded up and down to McMurphy once or twice, then turned him around to lead him down the hall toward the end of the line. Murphy called him back. Now, hold her a minute, George. You talk like you know something about this fishing business. George turned and shuffled back to McMurphy, listening back so far it looked like his feet had navigated right out from under him. You bet, sure. Twenty-five years I worked on the Chinook trollers, all the way from Half Moon Bay to Perkett Sound. Twenty-five year I fish before I get so dirty. He held out his hands for us to see the dirt on them. Everybody leaned over and looked. I didn't see dirt, but I did see scars worn deep into the white palms from hauling thousands of miles of fishing line out at sea. He let us look a minute, then rolled the hands shut and drew them away, and hid them in his pajama shirt that we might dirty them looking. He stood grinning at McMurphy with his gums like brine-bleached pork. I had a good troller boat, just 40 feet, but she drew 12 feet under, and she was a solid teak and solid oak. He rocked back and forth in a way to make you doubt that the floor was standing level. She was one good troller boat, my golly. He started to turn, but McMurphy stopped him again. Hell, George, why didn't you say you was a fisherman? I've been talking up this voyage like I was the old man of the sea, but just between you and me and the wall bear... The only boat I've been on was the battleship Missouri. And the only thing I know about fish is I like eating them better than cleaning them. Cleaning is easy. Somebody show you how. By God, you're going to be our captain, George. We'll be your crew. George tilted back, shaking his head. Those boats awful dirty anymore. Everything awful dirty. Hell with that. We got a boat specially sterilized, fore and after, swabbed clean as a hand's tooth. You won't get dirty, George, because you'll be the captain. Wouldn't have to bait a hook. Just be our captain and give orders to us dumb land lovers. How's that strike you? I could see George was tempted by the way he wrung his hands under his shirt, 
but he still said he couldn't risk getting dirty. McMurphy did his best to talk him into it, but George was still shaking his head when the big nurse's key hit the lock of the mess hall, and she came, jangling out of the door with her wicker bag of surprises, clicked down the line with automatic smile and good morning to each man as she passed. McMurphy noticed the way George leaned back from her and scowled. When she passed, McMurphy tilted his head and gave George the one bright eye. George, the stuff that nurse been saying about a bad scene, about how dangerous this trip might be. What about that? The ocean could be awful bad, sure. Awful rough. McMurphy looked down at the nurse, disappearing into the station, then back at George. George started twisting his hands around in his shirt more than ever, looking around at the silent faces watching him. By golly, he suddenly said, you think I'd let her scare me about the ocean? You think that? Ah, uh, guess not, George. I was thinking, though, that if you don't come along with us, and if there is some awful storm calamity, we're, every last one of us, liable to be lost at sea. You know that? And I didn't know nothing about boating. And I'll tell you something else. These two women coming to get us. I told the doctor it was my two aunts. Two widows of fishermen. Well, the only cruise night one of them did was on the cement. There won't be no more help in a fix than me. We need you, George. He took a pull on his cigarette and asked, You got ten bucks, by the way? George shook his head. No, I wouldn't suppose so. Well, what the devil? I gave the idea of coming out days ago. Here. He took a pencil out of the pocket of the green jacket, wiped it clean on his shirt, held it out to George. You can't nurse and we'll let you come along for five. George looked around at us again, working his big brow over the predicament. Finally, his gums showed in a bleached smile, and he reached for the pencil. By golly, he said, and headed off with the pencil to sign the last place on the list. After breakfast, walking down the hall, McMurphy stopped and printed C-A-P-T behind George's name. The horse was late, Everybody was beginning to think they weren't coming at all when McMurphy gave the yell from the window, and we all went running to look. He said that was them, but we didn't see but one car instead of the two we were counting on. And just one woman. McMurphy called to her through the window screen when she stopped in the parking lot. She came cutting straight across the grass towards our ward. She was younger and prettier than any of us figured on. Everybody had figured out that the girls were whores instead of aunts, and were expecting all sorts of things. Some of the religious guys weren't too happy about it. But seeing her come, light-footed across the grass with her eyes green all the way up to the ward, and her hair roped in a long twist at the back of her head, jouncing up and down with every step like a copper spring in the sun, all any of us could think of was that she was a girl. A female who wasn't dressed white from head to foot like she'd been dipped in frost. And how she made her money didn't make any difference. She ran right up against the screen where Murphy was and hooked her fingers through the mesh and pulled herself against it. She was panting from the run, and every breath looked like she might swell right through the mesh. She was crying a little. McMurphy! Oh, you damn McMurphy! Never mind that. Where's Sandra? She got tied up, man. Can't make it. But you... Oh, damn it. You okay?
She got tied up. Tell the truth. The girl wiped her nose and giggled. Oh, Sandy got married. Remember Artie Gillian from Beaverton? Always used to show up at parties with some grassy thing, like a gopher snake or a white mouse or some grassy thing like that in his pocket. A real maniac. Oh, sweet Jesus, McMurphy groaned. How am I supposed to get ten guys in one stinking Ford, Candy, sweetheart? How'd Sandra and her gopher snake from Beaverton figure on me swinging that? The girl looked like she was in the process of thinking up an answer when the speaker in the ceiling clacked and the big nurse's voice told McMurphy that if he wanted to speak with his lady friend, it'd be better if she signed in properly at the main door instead of disturbing the whole hospital. The girl left the screen and started towards the main entrance and McMurphy left the screen and flopped down in a chair in the corner, his head hanging. Hell's bells, he said. The least black boy led the girl into the ward and forgot to lock the door behind her. Caught hell for it later, I bet. And the girl came jouncing up the hall, past the nurse's station, where all the nurses were trying to freeze her bounce with a united icy look, and into the day room, just a few steps ahead of the doctor. He was going towards the nurse's station with some papers, looked at her, back at the papers, and back at her again, and went to fumbling after his glasses with both hands. She stopped when she got to the middle of the day room floor and saw she was circled by forty staring men in greens, and it was so quiet you could hear bellies growling, and all along the chronics row, hear catheters popping off. She had to stand there a minute while she looked around to find McMurphy, so everybody got a long look at her. There was a blue smoke hung near the ceiling over her head, I think the apparatus burned out all over the ward, trying to adjust to her coming busting in like she did. Took electronic readings on her and calculated they weren't built to handle something like this on the ward and just burn out like machines committing suicide. She had on a white t-shirt like McMurphy's, only a lot smaller. White tennis shoes and Levi pants snipped off above her knees to give her feet circulation. And it didn't look like it was near enough material to go around considering what it had to cover. She must have been seen with lots less, by lots more men. But under the circumstances, she began to fidget around, self-consciously, like a schoolgirl on stage. Nobody spoke while they looked. Martini did whisper that you could read the dates of the coins in her Levi's pockets, they were so tight. But he was closer, and could see better than the rest of us. Billy Bibbit was the first one to say something out loud. Not really a word, just a low, almost painful whistle that described how she looked better than anyone else could have. She laughed and thanked him very much, and he blushed so red that she blushed with him and laughed again. This broke things into movement. All the acutes were coming across the floor, trying to talk to her at once. The doctor was pulling on Harding's coat, asking who is this? And Murphy got up out of his chair and walked through the crowds to her. And when she saw him, she threw her arms around him and said, You damn McMurphy! and then got embarrassed and blushed again. When she blushed, she didn't look more than 16 or 17. I swear she didn't. McMurphy introduced her around, and she shook everybody's hand. When she got to Billy, she thanked him again for his whistle. The big nurse came sliding out of the station, smiling, and asked McMurphy how he intended to get all ten of us in one car. And he asked maybe he could borrow a staff car and drive the load himself, and the nurse cited a rule forbidding this, just like everyone knew she would.
she said, unless there was another driver to sign a responsibility slip, that half of the crew would have to stay behind. McMurphy told her this would cost him 50 goddamn bucks to make up the difference. He'd have to pay the guys back who didn't get to go. Then it may be, the nurse said, that the trip will have to be cancelled and all the money refunded. I've already rented the boat. Man's got 70 bucks of mine in his pocket right now. $70? So, I thought you told the patients you'd need to collect $100, plus 10 of your own to finance the trip, Mr. McMurphy. I was putting gas in the cars, over and back. That wouldn't amount to $30, though, would it? She smiled, so nice at him. Waiting. He threw his hands in the air and looked at the ceiling. Who? Boy, you don't miss a chance, do you, Miss District Attorney? Sure, I was keeping what was left over. I didn't think any of the guys ever thought any different. I figured to make a little, for the trouble it took to get. But your plans didn't work out, she said, and was still smiling at him, so full of sympathy. Your little financial speculations can't all be successes, Randall. And, actually, as I think about it now... You've had more than your share of victories. She mused about this, thinking about something I knew we'd hear more about later. Yes. Every acute on the ward has written you an I.O.U. for some deal of yours at one time or another. So, don't you think you can bear up under this one small defeat? Then she stopped. She saw McMurphy wasn't listening to her anymore. He was watching the doctor and the doctor was eyeing the blonde girl's t-shirt like nothing else existed. McMurphy's loose smile spread out along his face as he watched the doctor's trance, and he pushed his cap to the back of his head and strolled to the doctor's side, startling him with a hand on the shoulder. By God, Dr. Spivy, you ever seen a Chinook salmon hit a line? One of the fiercest sights on the seven seas. Say, Candy, honeybun, why don't you tell the doctor here about D.C. fishing and all that like? Working together, it didn't take McMurphy and the girl but two minutes, and the little doctor was down, locking up his office, and coming back in the hall, cramming papers into a briefcase. Good deal of paperwork I can get done on the boat, he explained to the nurse, and went past her so fast she didn't have a chance to answer, and the rest of the crew followed, slower, grinning at her, standing in the door at the nurse's station. The cutes who weren't going gathered at the day room door, told us don't bring our catch back till it's cleaned. And Ellis pulled his hands off the nails in the wall and squeezed Billy Bibbit's hand and told him to be a fisher of men. And Billy, watching the brass bats on that woman's Levi's wink at him as she walked out of the day room, told Ellis to hell with that fisher of men business. He joined us at the door, and the least black boy led us through and locked the door behind us. And we were out. Outside. The sun was prying up the clouds and lighting the brick front of the hospital rose bed. A thin breeze worked at sawing what leaves were left in the oak trees, stacking them neatly against the wire cyclone fence. There was little brown birds occasionally on the fence. When a puff of leaves would hit the fence, the birds would fly off with the wind. And it looked at first like the leaves were hitting the fence and turning into birds and flying away. It was a fine, wood-smoked autumn day, full of the sound of kids punning footballs and the putter of small aeroplanes. 
and everybody should have been happy just being outside, in it. But we all stood, in a silent bunch, with our hands in our pockets, while the doctor walked to get his car. A silent bunch, watching the townspeople, who were driving past on their way to work, slowed down to gawk at all the loonies in their green uniforms. And Murphy saw how uneasy we were, and tried to work us into a better mood by joking and teasing the girl. But this made us feel worse somehow. Everybody was thinking how easy it would be to return to the ward, go back, and say they decided the nurse had been right. With a wind like this, the sea would have been just too rough. The doctor arrived, and we loaded up and headed off. Me and George and Harding and Billy Bibbit in the car with McMurphy and the girl, Candy, and Fredrickson and Seffold and Scanlon and Martini and Tandem and Gregory following in the doctor's car. Everyone was awfully quiet. We pulled into a gas station about half a mile from the hospital. The doctor followed. He got out first, and a service station man came bouncing out, grinning and wiping his hands on a rack. Then he stopped grinning and went past the doctor to see just what was in these cars. He backed off, wiping his hands on the oil rag, frowning. The doctor caught the man's sleeve, nervously, and took out a $10 bill and tucked it down in the man's hands like setting out a tomato plant. Ah, would you fill both tanks with regular? The doctor asked. He was acting just as uneasy about being out of the hospital as the rest of us were. Would you? Those uniforms, the service station man said, they're from the hospital back up the road, aren't they? He was looking around him to see if there was a wrench or something handy. He finally moved over near a sack of empty pop bottles. You guys, uh, from that asylum... The doctor fumbled for his glasses and looked at us, too, like he'd just noticed the uniforms. Yes. No, I mean. We... They are from the asylum, but they're work crew, not inmates. Of course not. A work crew. The man squinted at the doctor, and at us, and went off to whisper with his partner, who was back among the machinery. They talked a minute, and the second guy hollered and asked the doctor who we were and the doctor repeated that we were a work crew, and both the guys laughed. I could tell by the laugh that they decided to sell us the gas. Probably it'd be weak and dirty and watered down and cost twice the price of usual. But it didn't make me feel any better. I could see everybody was feeling pretty bad. The doctor's lying made us feel worse than ever. Not because of the lie so much, but because of the truth. The second guy came over to the doctor, grinning. You said you wanted Supreme, sir? You bet. And how about us checking those oil filters and their windshield wipes? He was bigger than his friend. He leaned down on the door like he was sharing a secret. Would you believe it? 88% of the cars show by the figures on the road today that they need new oil filters and windshield wipes. His grin was coated with carbon from years of taking out spark plugs with his teeth. He kept leaning on the doctor making him squirm with that grin and waiting for him to admit that he was over a barrel. Also, how's your crew fixed for sunglasses? We got some good Polaroids. The doctor knew he had him, but just the instant he opened his mouth, about to give in and say, yes, anything, there was a whirring noise, and the top of our car was folding back, 
McMurphy was fighting and cursing the accordion-pleated top, trying to force it back faster than the machinery could handle. Everybody could see how mad he was by the way he thrashed and beat at that slowly rising top. When he got it cussed and hammered and wrestled down into place, he climbed right out over the girl and over the side of the car and walked up between the doctor and the service station guy and looked into the black mouth with one eye. Okay now, Hank. We'll take regular, just like the doctor ordered. Two tanks are regular. That's all. Hell without us, slum. And we'll take it at three cents off because we're goddamn government-sponsored exhibition. The guy didn't budge. Yeah, I thought the professor here said you weren't patients. Now, Hank, don't you see that was just a kindly precaution to keep from startling you folk with the truth? The doctor wouldn't lie like that just about any patients, but we ain't ordinary nuts. We are every bloody one of us hot off the criminal insane ward on our way to San Quentin, where they got better facilities to handle us. See that freckle-faced kid there? Now, he might look like he's right off Saturday evening post cover, but he's an insane knife artist that killed three men. That man beside him is known as the Bull Goose Looney, unpredictable as a wild hog. You see that guy? He's an engine, and he beat six white men to death with a pick handle when they tried to cheat him trading muscat hides. Stand up where they can get a good look at you, chief. Harding goosed me with his thumb when I stood up on the floor of the car. The guy shaded his eyes and looked up at me and didn't say anything. Oh, it's a bad group, I admit, McMurphy said. But it's a planned, authorized, legal government-sponsored excursion, and we're entitled to a legal discount just the same as if we were with the FBI. The guy looked back at McMurphy, and Murphy hooked his thumbs in his pockets and rocked back and looked up at him across the scar on his nose. The guy turned to check if his buddy was still stationed at the case of empty pop bottles, then grinned back down on McMurphy. Pretty tough customers, is that what you're saying, Red? So we much better toe the line and do what we're told, is that what you're trying to say? Well, tell me, Red, what is it that you're in for? Trying to assassinate the president? Nobody could prove that, Hank. They got me on a bum rap. Killed a man in a ring, you see. Sort of taken with a kick. One of those killers with boxing gloves. Is that what you're telling me, Red? Now nah, I didn't say that, did I? I can never get used to those pillows you wore. No, there wasn't no televised main event in the cow palace. I'm more what you call a backlight boxer. The guy hooked his thumbs in his pockets to Mark McMurphy. You're more what I call a backlight bull thrower. Now, I didn't say that bull throwing wasn't also one of my abilities, did I? But I want you to look here. He put his hands up in the guy's face, real close, turning them over, slowly, palm and knuckle. You ever see a man get his poor old meat hook so pitiful chewed up from throwing the bull? Did you, Hank? He held those hands in the guy's face a long time, waiting to see if the guy had anything else to say. The guy looked at the hands and at me, and back of the hands. When it was clear he didn't have anything else real pressing to say, McMurphy walked away from him to the other guy, leaning against the pop cooler, and plucked the doctor's $10 bill out of his fist and started for the grocery store next to the station. You boys tally what the gas comes to and send the bill to the hospital. He called back, and then to use the cash to pick up some refreshments for the men. 
I believe we'll get that in place of windshield wipes and 88% oil filters. By the time he got back, everybody was feeling cocky as fighting roosters and calling orders to the service station guys to check the air in the spare and wipe the windows and scratch that bird dropping off the hood, if you please, just like we owned the show. When the big guy didn't get the windshield to suit Billy, Billy called him back. You didn't get this spot here with the the bug hit it. That wasn't a bug, the guy said sullenly, scratching at it with his fingernail. It was a bird. Martini called all the way from the other car that it couldn't have been a bird. There'd have been feathers and bones if it was a bird. A man riding a bicycle stopped to ask what was the idea of all the green uniforms. Some kind of club? Harding popped right up and answered him. No, my friend. We are lunatics from the hospital up the highway psychoceramics, the crackpots of mankind. Would you like me to decipher a raw shack for you? No? You must hurry on. He's gone. Pity. He turned to McMurphy. Never before did I realize that mental illness could have the aspect of power. Power. Think of it. Perhaps the more insane a man is, the more powerful he could become. Hitler, an example. Fair makes the old brain real, doesn't it? Food for thought there. Billy punched a beer can for the girl, and she flustered him with her so bright smile and her, Thank you, Billy. That he took to opening cans for all of us, while the pigeons fretted up and down the sidewalk with their hands folded behind their backs. I sat there, feeling whole and good, sipping at a beer, I could hear the beer all the way down me, like that. I'd forgotten that there could be good sounds and tastes, like the sound and taste of beer going down. I took another big drink and started looking around me to see what else I had forgotten in 20 years. (laughs) Man, Murphy said as he scooted the girl out from under the wheel and tied over against Billy. Will you look at Big Chief slugged down on that firewater? and slammed the car into traffic with the doctor squealing behind to keep up. He'd shown us what a little bravado and courage could accomplish, and we thought he'd taught us how to use it. All the way to the coast, we had fun pretending to be brave, when people at a stoplight would stare at us and our green uniforms. We'd do just like he did, sit up straight and strong and tough-looking, and put a big grin on our face and stare straight back at them until their motors died and their windows sunstreaked, and they were left sitting where the light changed. Upset bad by what a tough bunch of monkeys was just now not three feet from them. And help, nowhere in sight, as McMurphy led the twelve of us toward the ocean. I think McMurphy knew better than we did that our tough looks were all show, because he still wasn't able to get a real laugh out of anybody. Maybe he couldn't understand why we weren't able to laugh yet, but he knew you couldn't really be strong until you can see the funny side in things. In fact, He worked so hard at pointing out the funny side of things that I was wondering, a little, if maybe he was blind to the other side. If maybe he wasn't able to see what it was that parched laughter deep inside your stomach. Maybe the guys weren't able to see it either. Just feel the pressures of different beams and frequencies, coming from all directions, working to push and bend you one way or another. Feel the combine at work but I was able to see it. The way you see change in a person you've been away from for a long time, where someone who sees him every day, day in, day out, wouldn't notice because the change is gradual. 
All up the coast, I could see the signs of what the Combine had accomplished since I was last through this country. Things like, for example, a train stopping at a station, laying a string of full-grown men in mirrored suits and matching hats, laying them like a hatch of identical insects, half-life things coming out of the last car, then hooting its electric whistle and moving on down the spoiled land to deposit another hatch. Or things like 5,000 houses punched out identical by a machine and strung across the hills outside of town, so fresh from the factory they're still linked together, like sausages. A sign saying, Nest in the web homes, no down payment for vets. A playground down the hill from the houses, behind a checkered white fence, and another sign that reads, St. Luke's School for Boys. There were 5,000 kids in green corduroy pants and white shirts under green pullover sweaters playing the crack whip across an acre of crushed gravel. The line popped and twisted and jerked like a snake, and every crack popped a little kid off the end, sent him rolling against the fence like a tumbleweed. Every crack. And it was always the same little kid, over and over. All that 5,000 kids lived in those 5,000 houses, owned by the guys that got off that train. The houses looked so much alike that, time and time again, the kids went home by mistake to different houses and different families. Nobody ever noticed. They ate and went to bed. The only one that noticed was the little kid at the end of the whip. He'd always been so scuffed and bruised that he'd show up out of place wherever he went. He wasn't able to open up and laugh either. It's a hard thing to laugh if you can feel the pressure of those beams coming past every new car or every new house you pass. We can even have a lobby in Washington, Harding was saying, an organization, NAARP, pressure groups. Big billboards along the highway showing a babbling schizophrenic running a wrecking machine. Bold, red and green top, hire the insane. We got a rosy future, gentlemen. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe, because there's more to come. And we're about to get into the fishing trip, which is interesting. The men open up quite a bit, which is great to see. They're finally out of that accursed place that they've been sent to. Uh, I hope you enjoyed. If you did, do all the things. You know, leave a review, comment, like, all the stuff. And I'll see you very shortly. Bye-bye.